Take a network break. Welcome to our weekly rundown of IT news. We got stories on a bunch of Juniper vulnerabilities, a big T-Mobile breach, Avaya on the brink of possible bankruptcy, and a little space networking and more. We're sponsored today by Nokia and its data center fabric for network automation and orchestration. Nokia's data center fabric is designed for day zero design, day one deployment, and operations for day two and beyond. Find out more at nokia.ly slash dc-fabric and listen to heavy networking episode 653 to get details and hear customer use cases. Uh, and check out our human infrastructure newsletter. It's at packetpushers.net slash newsletter. Every week we highlight tech blogs you should be reading, new product announcement, fun memes, and more. It's free to sign up. You can read all the back issues at packetpushers.net slash newsletter. All right, let's dive into the news first. Juniper Networks has issued advisories on a raft of security vulnerabilities affecting multiple Juniper products, including MX and QFX networking gear and the Contrail networking orchestration platform. Uh, SC Magazine says more than 230 vulnerabilities are detailed, although only three are rated critical. And at present, there's no indication of active exploits. I think the interesting part about this is that it looks like Juniper's found them, but this doesn't look like they've been publicly disclosed and now Juniper's racing to fix them. They all appear to be just vulnerabilities that somebody found. Is that is that your reading? That is also my reading. And there was a, a note mm. in the SC Magazine article saying that some of them are also uh, third-party components inside Juniper products. So I guess Juniper's feeling mm. like it's not entirely our fault here with all these vulnerabilities. Yeah. So I guess the main thing here is that there's uh, Juniper's doing public disclosure. So they're not just fixing these and then blithely going on. They're actually publicly disclosing that there was 200 vulnerabilities and uh you know and we fixed them and there you go and if you want to sort of take it as you know oh my gosh they've got 230 <laughs> vulnerabilities you kind of want to dump on them for that because right. you actually like one of, part of you wants to go like how can they possibly produce a products that have so many vulnerabilities that's like oracle class vulnerability you know <laughs> patch patch yes. tuesday sort and of microsoft thing. yes uh-huh mm. but on the other hand it might just be as you say i think this is much more like we found these vulnerabilities they've for all I know, they've got some new development tool or code scanning tool and they've implemented it, some sort of AI code scanning tool. And they've gone like, oh, all of these bugs. Wow. But they're also publishing the fact and disclosing that they exist. So that's that's a good thing. It's always, uh, you know, tricky. I do agree there's this impulse uh, on my end to be like, 230, good Lord, what are you doing? But also <laughs> responsible disclosure is important and they've done that. So mm. kudos to them for it. Uh, it's an embarrassing number, but, you know, they're not letting that stop them. They, and we've got a link to the, that list of vulnerabilities. Mm. You want to go and see if there's any uh, patching or updating you need to do. So, yeah. Yeah, they're, they're not world ending, right? It's not like Cisco's right. you know, ASA firewall has a, you know, uh, zero day in the web VPN right. and has yeah. had for the last 15 years. These, you know, they're not that bad. You know, they're not like, oh, we just didn't bother to test it. It's much more like, oh, this is a, a detailed analysis. It does really look to me like they've implemented some sort of tool and gone, oh, oh look at that. <laughs> wow. Hey, how about that? We better fix these. Mm. Uh, and yes, mm. uh, vulnerabilities and exploits are probably going to be a theme uh, on this episode. So let's move on. Uh, there's a handful of Cisco small business routers that are vulnerable to a pair of exploits that would let remote attackers bypass authentication and execute code remotely. But but because the routers are end-of-life, Cisco isn't issuing patches. Instead, the company has offered workarounds, including disabling remote management and blocking a couple of ports. The affected routers are RV16, RV042, RV042G, and RV082. Yeah, so there's not much to say about this except, <laughs> remember what we said in the previous one, that Cisco quite often um, fails to secure the mode office thing. If you're going to have remote attacker bypass authentication and execute code... That's a bad thing. Those are that's, the bad ones. That's not a, <laughs> right. yeah, it's not like, oh, if, you're, if you've got access to the box and you're already logged in and you run this tool, you can compromise the box. Right. That's one thing. But this is straight up um, auth bypass and um, 
execute code on the boxes. So you can now turn them into devices that you can use to attack other people. And and the second phase of this is these are SMB devices mm-hmm. meant to be sold to small companies or small businesses. And small businesses just don't have the resources to make these things right. And so part of me wants to say, you know, <laughs> the SMB market is different. They don't have the profits. And so they can't consistently maintain their technology and Cisco should be out there protecting the internet, the public WAN, from these faulty devices. I would think that I, I would take the view that these devices are actually faulty. And Cisco does have a reputation for poor quality control and poor development practices. It does lead to regular security problems that just, you know, completely fail at the most basic stuff. You know, remote user authentication and you're gonna go straight to a code <laughs> executing code on a device. You know, that's not it's twenty twenty three. That should be great. Yeah, yeah, you know, even five years ago that wasn't acceptable. So but on the other hand, I also want to recognize that Cisco doesn't want to be in the SMB market anymore. They want to put that behind them and walk away from this. There's a lot more. The, the, you know, Fixing that code might be quite difficult if that's running some sort of obsolete CPU architecture or the mm-hmm. code base is very mm-hmm. old. Mm-hmm. Part of me wants to say we need to move forward, and, and the only way we can move forward is to replace certain things. I mean, and a lot of the times we don't. Look, a lot of people are still using Microsoft Windows. It's obviously horrible, unreliable, unstable, and unsafe, but we still have it. Right, and we could move so much more forward if we didn't have to run Microsoft Windows everywhere. So, torn here, but I do think in the case of SMB, you have an obligation, especially when you're Cisco, to make good at least for the egregious vulnerabilities like this. Yeah, I'm also torn in that you know these are end of life products. Uh, presumably, Cisco let uh, the customers know these are end of life products. They're going to fall out of maintenance support. You know, you're sort of running at your own peril if you're going to continue to use these. So, you know, that that is uh, a point for Cisco, but agreed, these are SMB products. Uh, they don't have a lot of money. They don't have a lot of staff or expertise to take care of things like this. These are really significant vulnerabilities. Cisco maybe could have gotten a little, you know, uh, PR out of this by saying, you know, this is EOL, but we're going to patch it anyway, just for the, the betterment of the internet. They decided not to go that mm-hmm. route, maybe because they don't want to set a precedent. So yeah, I'm also feeling two ways about this. They are EOL. Cisco does you know, did tell customers this is going to happen and here's, you know, so it's, <laughs> the risk is on you now and I guess they are right yeah. to do that. They, they have the right know to do who that. Owns them, right? Really? Really? You think they actually rang up somebody? <laughs> I don't know. They're pretty good talking. at tracking their customers. You never know. Uh, <laughs> well, maybe, but not down at this level, right? Yeah, that's true. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I'll bet you if you send an email to a small business with five people, you know, saying <laughs> your, ra- your routers are vulnerable, <laughs> they'd just look at it and go like, oh, that's a spam message. <laughs> <You know? laughs> right. It's quite different when you send something to a CCIE and the message comes from Cisco's tax saying there's a problem. Right. By the way, you want to disable port 443 and and 60443 and they're like, who, what? What, uh, How do I close those? Where's the the latch? I know I've got an IT guy, but I have to pay him $150 an hour. I really don't have $150. Anyway, links in the show notes if you uh, maybe have one of these routers or one of your clients or customers has uh, these routers in stock if you want to get more details. Uh, moving on, Avaya has announced uh, a round of layoffs in Europe as the company struggles to right the financial ship. In December, the Wall Street Journal said the company was nearing Chapter 11 bankruptcy to help restructure its debt. In June 2022, the company had borrowed $600 million to help it stay afloat. Uh, as you may know, the company's primary business engines are contact centers as a service and unified communications as a service, which I think is a tough market these days. Yeah, it's hard to imagine a company that missed contact centers more. You know, they were so well positioned and then Zoom comes along and mm-hmm. Microsoft Teams comes along and takes away the bulk of that market, mm-hmm. leaving uh, really what's happened is Cisco and Avaya going head to head in the contact center market, especially for the, you know, as part of COVID too, 
those contact centers at that scale and the ability to work remotely should have been raking it in. So it's hard to imagine how they're struggling. There should have been sales galore and profits to be had for very little effort. But that said, Avaya as a company was um, involved in a buyout, a private equity buyout, uh, during the period when a private equity company would buy it, flip it over and flip it within two years after loading it up with a couple of billion dollars worth of debt. And that, uh -huh. as I understand it, is Avaya. So it is a shame. I would say that Avaya will come back as a muted uh, running zombie where somebody will buy it for rent extraction. They'll maintain the existing companies. The products will be maintained at a minimum level and it will run until it's uh, producing nice profits, but there won't be too much development going forward. I would love to be proven wrong. I think Avaya's had a great history. And also, just to keep in mind that Avaya sold their data networking business to Extreme Networks in February 2021, right. and the deal closed in the middle of last year. Right. So we're not talking about switches anymore when we're talking about Avaya. It's all uh, UCAS and, and contact centers mm -hmm. service. Yeah, Extreme was very quick to move them off into a consistent strategy. So Extreme's been moving, you know, having acquired Brocade and mm -hmm. Avaya and a range, of, a whole bunch of other switch vendors products over the years. They're now moving them all onto a, a, you know, giving them strong incentives, shall we say, to move them to a particular thing. And which was a shame because Avaya was doing shortest path bridging and did amazing, right. amazing things with that product. We wouldn't have needed MPLS if we had have gone down the SPB path. I know people who still miss those switches. And at the SPB mm. implementation, yeah, they really liked it. Mm. Uh, just a note on this, uh, in Avaya's uh, third quarter financial results, which were the most recent, the company reported revenues of $557 million. Not bad, but it was down 20% year over year, and they had a net income loss of $1.4 billion, billion with a B. So, wow, that is yep. not good. They'll be servicing debts. That yep. they, they're stuck with a bunch of debts on the balance sheet, I think, if you dug into that, as I said. Right, and they recently added $600 million more. So, uh, good luck, Avaya. <laughs> <laughs> Still 500 million in revenue. Not bad. In one quarter. In one quarter. Yeah. So yeah, there yeah. is money to be made. Uh, they just yeah, got a... Two billion a year in revenue. <laughs> so, you know. Hmm. The shareholders are going to get a haircut or somebody's going to get a haircut uh, when they, if, if and when they get to bankruptcy. Probably the bondholders. But <laughs> Probably, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, quick break to tell you about our sponsor, Nokia and its data center fabric for network automation and orchestration. Nokia's data center fabric is designed for automation from day zero design, day one deployment, and operations for day two and beyond. The scalable fabric helps the network team keep pace with the demand for new applications and services, reduce risks with a digital sandbox to test changes against your actual network configuration, and provides insights into visibility and performance with deep telemetry. The fabric comes together with Nokia's SR Linux Network OS, the intent-based fabric services system platform, a digital sandbox, the NetOps Development Kit, or NDK, and more. You can get details at nokia.ly slash dc-fabric. That's nokia.ly slash dc-fabric. And you can listen to Heavy Networking Episode 653 to learn all about how it works and how customers are using Nokia's data center fabric in production. We thank Nokia for being a sponsor. Yeah, they've got a really nice, tidy model. They don't... Uh... They haven't expanded into the what I think of as uh, uh, orchestration bloat, like what Cisco ACI has done. They haven't moved into as, not a quite as complex as uh, Arista's cloud vision. They've kept it very tightly focused on a narrow thing, and I think that makes it easier for some people to get involved. Um, if you take it from that angle, maybe that's something that you'd be interested in looking at. And particularly, they've got the ability to fully abstract the model. So the operating system that runs on this, the SR Linux, can be completely... Um, run in VMs and you can fully test up your entire network before you actually do a deployment. Right. That's that digital sandbox feature where you can essentially mm. say, I've got my network. It looks like this. What if I make this change? What happens? Uh, which is a nice feature. Mm. Yeah. It's cool. 
All right, moving on. Uh, tech giants Microsoft and Google have announced significant layoffs. Microsoft announced it'll lay off 10,000 people, which is about uh, slightly less than 5% of its workforce. Google also announced it would cut 12,000 people, about 6% of its workforce. Yeah, and that's on a top of a previous 10,000 in November 2022 <laughs> from <laughs> Google. Mm -hmm. So that's 20,000. Um, should also note that Amazon's releasing 18,000 workers, although they're not necessarily all IT. They're actually closing some warehouses and you know various of its bookstores, if you like. Um, Facebook's ditching 11,000 people. Salesforce is ditching 7,000 people. Uh, back in December, Cisco did its Christmas We Hate Our Employees by ditching 4,100 people. Uh, and Twitter, of course, has shared anywhere from 5,000 to 7,500 people uh, and maybe even up to 10,000, who knows, uh, in December 2022 and still going, really. Now, a lot of this is people are going like, oh, my gosh, there's going to be like unemployed tech workers. But uh, I was wandering around somewhere in the Internet today. I think it was on Twitter, but I'm not sure. And somebody was drawing, making the point that 80% of those people have already found jobs within three months of being laid off. Mm. So they've probably come out of that at a profit because the tech companies generally, these companies at least, have pretty generous severance packages. Usually it's three months and various benefits and stuff. Um, so a lot of people probably come out of that positive if they've been able to walk out of one job and then into another uh, before the period expired. Um, so I don't really think this is a big deal in the sense that the big companies just made it hard to hire people. Uh, but it is interesting to sort of think that, you know, sure, there's so much, so lack of technical people that you lay off what, nearly 60,000 people in the US, maybe 80,000. And they can and be absorbed. nobody's really noticed any slowdown in demand. Yeah, I guess, my, well, one thing is th these are big numbers and they are actual people's lives. It causes a lot of stress and anxiety. So uh, sympathies to everybody going through this. It's a terrible thing. Uh, hopefully you are getting good severance. Um, the other is I think it makes uh, the broader market nervous when it sees big companies laying off huge numbers, even though they mm -hmm. are a small fraction of their workforce and kind of feeds into this notion of a, a tech winter is coming and a recession is coming, which may or may not be true. A lot of these companies overhired during the pandemic. Uh, and uh, these companies are still hugely profitable. Uh, I saw a tweet from someone who was like, don't, don't forget, they're generating a lot of profits. It's just shareholders, you know, want to see even more. So one way to do that is uh, cut some staff. And you can also, I guess, mm. look at people's performance and decide, yeah, we're going to get rid of some, some folks who may not be performing as, as much as we like. Oh. So it's, it's, it's all very strange. I was reading an analyst report and they're saying one company was laying off 10,000 stuff, but they'll hire 4,000 in the next three months. So <laughs> okay. some of it's just stunt layoffs. <laughs> like it's not, <laughs> right. I'm not too worried about it. I don't, I think this is the sort of thing that we see from time to time. I'm sure for the people involved, it's could be very traumatic. Um, but my point has always been to say to you, always be ready to be fired at any time, because this is the sort of thing that happens no matter who you work for. One thing I will note, is that I've had a number of contacts this week where people are saying, oh, the recruiters are contacting me endlessly at the moment. There's so many people looking for employee for workers, but they're all on-site or office-based, uh -huh. and they can't find anybody. So the recruiters are ringing up and saying, oh, I've got a job in such and such a place. And the person says, I live on the other side of the country or in another you know, another landmass. I'm in mm -hmm. Europe. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to fly to Omaha in the USA to start work on Monday. <laughs> you know, that's right. not going to happen. <laughs> not gonna happen. Um, so my guess is that, you know, a lot of these workers are very remote savvy. You know, if you're being kicked out of somebody like, you know, Salesforce or Twitter, you're good at working remotely after the thing and you're just able to move. You're probably still sitting at home in the same house as you were before, just working for a different employer. No change. Um, but if you're a company that wants to get people in the office, nobody, you know, that's a much smaller market and they're right. going to struggle. Of course, if you're a recruiter, you've got inventory on the books that you're trying to fill. 
and you can't fill it because nobody wants those jobs or, you know, so that's, that's an interesting, you know, counterpoint. Yeah. So maybe if you're trying to game the system a little bit, you can put on your LinkedIn profile, willing to work in an office uh, that may help you, you know, get through uh, the uh, HR machinery a little faster. Yeah, but the chances of you finding an office where you live is pretty. I guess it depends on where you live, but uh, you know, you never know. It could be yeah. it could be an option. Uh, I will note uh, the Wall Street Journal knows that the day before Microsoft announced the cuts, uh, Microsoft hosted an intimate gathering of about fifty people, including top Microsoft executives, for a private performance from Sting at the World Economic Forum in Davos, Switzerland. Uh, that's a little too Marie Antoinette. Let them eat cake-ish for me. I'm, it's not a good look. <laughs> It's not a good look, right? But it does have to be said that Microsoft told uh, shareholders that they would allocate $1.2 billion in layoff costs. Mm -hmm. So remember so what I said, those people getting the boot from Microsoft are not getting badly treated like the ones from Twitter. The ones yeah. at Twitter. Oh, yeah. That's, yeah. that's a different story entirely. Yeah. 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 There's a good chance that Twitter might actually go bankrupt just to avoid paying termination. Right. Uh, staff termination. I, I think that's, that's becoming a bigger and bigger issue. Yeah. Yes. Yes. So, uh, yeah, but having Sting play you off, I guess, uh, I don't know if that softens the blow or not, but uh, there yeah. it is. Uh, honestly, if you've listened to Sting lately, probably not. It was, <laughs> I'm sure he was doing the hits. But, you know. <laughs> I'm sure he was doing his best, but, you know. <laughs> All right, moving on. Uh, network service providers Packet Fabric and Unitas Global have announced a merger of the two companies. The uh, new entity will retain the Packet Fabric uh, brand name. So not really a merger. It was a takeover. <laughs> <laughs> if you if you read between the lines, you'll realize that Unitas Global has definitely been mer uh, merged into Packet Fabric. It's not a merger at all. It should be noted that uh, the two Packet Fabric took a significant investment in Unitas Global six months ago, maybe twelve months ago, if I remember rightly, and they got into sort of a partnership before that. So it's not like this is an out of the blue. This is an evolving situation. Um, the two businesses are quite different. Packet Fabric is much more of a network as a service. That is you know, do an overlay over somebody else's infrastructures, your virtual routers, virtual firewalls, virtual connections over, you know, public WAN type stuff. Whereas Unitas Global actually owns a bunch of infrastructure and it owns backbone infrastructure, but it also has in-place agreements with telcos in various locations mm -hmm. to actually control the fiber. So if you're sort of merging the NAS and an orchestrated heritage telco solution, the two together, I think what they're reaching for here is the ability for... Uh, customers who are asking for SLAs and service agreements from the internet. And of course, that's stupid, right? But <laughs> there's plenty of stupid customers out there, as vendors uh, want to tell me. Um, so the, I see this as a step for, to them saying, oh, sure, we've got the normal network as a service where we just put it on top and it works fine. But if you want SLAs and guarantees, we put it on this platform over here, our Unitas uh -huh. Global platform, uh -huh. where we own a certain amount of the infrastructure and we, we own the underlying and we can give you better SLAs or better guarantees using this and maybe that works. And then of course, you know, with the funding drying up for VCs, this might also give both companies a bit more runway and a bit more product diversity to be able to rationalize some internal headcount. And they're also going to have to merge their cloud infrastructure as well. So the apps are going to have to merge, but looking good, you know, nothing seemed, nothing obviously wrong with the plan. No, it seems like a, a sensible uh, uh, acquisition or merger, however you want to put it, um, you know, if, mm. There is, I think, an appetite for private networking. If you want to connect, you know, you've got a couple of essential sites you want to connect, data centers or colo spaces, or you want, uh, for some reason, for some business reason, guaranteed performance when you're connecting something to the cloud, then uh, Packet Fabric can give you both that that overlay option and mm -hmm. that private network option, which I guess for them, yeah. Yeah, they don't. They have some overlapping customers, uh, but Unitex Global was uh, very much focused on the enterprise. 
and packet fabric was much more um, aimed at people who are in the web scale clouds and cloud providers. You know, if you want to connect Azure to AWS and so forth. And so there's a definite, you know, not there's not an overlap, less of an overlap there than you might otherwise think. So probably going to work out well um, for, for both companies in the long run. Uh, moving on, an attacker exploited a vulnerable API to steal approximately 37 million customer records from T-Mobile. This is according to an SEC filing by the company. T-Mobile says the attacker got details including customer names, billing address, email, phone number, and T-Mobile account numbers. T-Mobile says social security and payment card info was not accessed. Uh, T-Mobile discovered the breach on January 5th, 2023, but the breach started on or around the 25th of November, 2022. So almost six weeks uh, this was going on before T-Mobile figured it out. Really, I think this is just sort of the ongoing thing where I would say security doesn't matter. Timo doesn't care. AT&T doesn't care. Vodafone doesn't care. You know, so what? <laughs> well, <laughs> Until somebody really decides that they care, this is just going to keep on going. You know, we saw Experian this week um, was hacked in inverted commas just because people could have put your name at the end of a field and then they could get your personal data from Experian. Again, after all this time, Lord. Experian. Yeah, yeah. So, um, you know, oh, I guess I, I I want to be horrified by this, but generally I'm just going, oh. Yeah, I, I mean, I, so the bleeping computer, which covered the story, notes that this is the eighth breach of T-Mobile since 2018, and the company was last breached in April 2022, where attackers reportedly made off with some T-Mobile source code. So obviously, T-Mobile is really bad uh, at securing uh, its resources and customer data. Uh, I will note the official T-Mobile press release says that they shut down the attack within 24 hours after detecting it, but you have to go to the SEC filing to find out that it had been like five or six weeks that it was going on before they figured it out. So, wow, T-Mobile not looking good. No, no. And, you know, but, you know, why would they be embarrassed? Why would they care? Nobody else seems to care. So much though it annoys me. <laughs> what can I say? <laughs> I'm afraid I can't disagree with your cynicism. I have nowhere to put my anxiety. <laughs> 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 All right, we're going to wrap up with a little space networking. Uh, the Register is reporting that SpaceX is cooperating with the U.S. National Science Foundation on ways to minimize the impact that its Starlink satellites are having on ground-based astronomical observation. The issues are twofold. First, the satellites themselves, which reflect sunlight, can appear uh, as streaks in time-lapsed photography, which obscures views. And apparently some of the frequency bands that the satellites use to communicate with Earth are near to frequency bands used in radio astronomy, which sometimes causes interference. Uh, so uh, SpaceX and the National Science Foundation are trying to figure out ways to reduce the impact of Starlink on uh, astronomy. Can't shake the feeling that SpaceX is going, yeah, yeah, sure, sure, we'll do something. Definitely no, absolutely. What? <laughs> no way. You know, and two years later, no, we're going to definitely get to that. We're definitely going to, you know, just as soon as we've, our next generation of satellites, they'll, they'll definitely, because that's what's happened so far, Um all the generations of satellites, since the first satellites went up, SpaceX promised that they wouldn't infect the night sky and had promised the NSF that they wouldn't, but they did. They didn't paint them black or whatever. They left them shiny and all uh -huh. that sort of stuff and uh -huh. caused problems. And then a couple of sets of satellites that went up did were black and everybody was really happy and thought that the problem was solved. And then SpaceX started throwing satellites up that actually weren't black again and they were shiny and causing streaks again. Uh, color me dubious. This really feels like a billionaire who just couldn't care. He's got the thing that he's doing. And this is just like, why are you getting in my way? I'm trying to help you, helping myself make money sort of thing. And sure. So, color me dubious. Yeah. Definitely dubious. I guess, uh, I don't know how much pull the National Science Foundation has with the Federal Communications Commission, but the FCC does have uh, some sway here. Uh, SpaceX wants to launch thousands and thousands, tens of thousands more satellites. 
So maybe they can hold that over uh, SpaceX's head in here. But yes, I also agree that Elon Musk has a long history of overpromising when it comes to things like regulation and safety and so on. So yeah, don't, don't, don't hold your breath. Mm-hmm. All right, that wraps up our news. Uh, the link in the show notes if you want to read about that story for yourself. Um, Greg, we're done for the day. Where can folks get more from you? Uh, I'll be uh, tweeting occasionally at Ethereal Mind, but I'm uh, de- definitely trying to pick up my blogging pace at etherealmind.com. Uh, it's like a muscle. I, I How did I lose the muscle? To blog? I used to blog all the time, and that's where I'm heading. But it's like getting the muscles to to get that writing seamlessly out the fingers and published. So it's taking me longer than I would have thought because I do a lot of reading and then I've forgotten to publish it. So <laughs> getting, look getting. for me more in an RSS reader on etherealmind.com and packetpushes.net. Place up those mental running shoes, do a few push-ups, start, start pining out the blogs. Mm. Uh, I'm Drew Conramari. I'm on Twitter at Drew underscore C. I'm also blogging at PacketPushers.net, and I'm experimenting with Mastodon. If you want to follow me there, I'm on the Mastodon social uh, at Drew underscore CM as well. Uh, thank you for joining us. Uh, if you like this show, please like us on Facebook, leave a recommendation on Apple Podcasts, or share a link with your friends. As always, thanks for listening.